in my culture, death is not the end. It's more of a stepping off point. You reach out with both hands and bust and segment. They lead you into the green belt where you can run forever. North-South Connection Podcast Network. Welcome to another special presentation. It's Johnny C, and we're going to talk about the movies yet again. As I'm sure you're probably aware, unless you live under a rock, that's a really old cliche, probably should have thought of something funnier, but I didn't. Uh, Unless you live under a rock, you are probably already aware that this weekend marked the opening of the latest entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Black Panther... Wakanda forever. And uh, I'm just a few hours away from taking a look at the picture on the big screen myself. And so uh, it's business as usual here on the special reports. I was just going to try to chat with you all for a little bit briefly about the film in terms of what I'm excited for, uh, what it might mean for the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe to a lesser extent, but also uh, to review the film and talk deep about it, like dive really deep into it once I see the film. Of course, the show is designed to be a tale of two halves. The first half will clearly marked, uh, will be clearly marked when I end and I'm done talking about spoilers, and then the second half will be completely full of spoilers, so please don't spoil this one for yourself. It looks like it just might be pretty darn good, but I will let you know ad nauseum before I switch over, and of course, I'll mark it in the show notes as always. So, 
man, we're here. Wakanda forever. I I am excited to get back to this corner of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, I, I won't dive too much into this particular experience because, uh, you know, it, it, I just remember going to see the initial Black Panther film in theaters the weekend it came out. And to be able to see, like, the families that were there and the kids, you know, getting to see Chadwick Boseman up on screen, you know, representing yeah, someone that looks like them. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to get into a big old thing, but I, to me, that was super special. And I, have, I, I liked Black Panther. I thought it was a really good entry into the MCU. It's, it's probably in the top five-ish. Um, some wonky special effects at the end aside. Uh, Michael B. Jordan is fucking awesome. I've got a shirt. I, I, as soon as I saw the movie, I went out and bought a shirt that said Killmonger was right because his plan, while, <laughs> while ill-intended, did make logistical sense. Uh, but that's a story for another time. But uh, it just, I, I was so happy to just, because I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to theatrical experiences. Like, I absolutely read way more into it than I should. To me, God, I, I want to punch myself or even say this out loud, but it's kind of a magical thing to go and, and watch a movie and to see these these individuals in the theater who are with me, who are having different experiences from me. Oh, God, it was fucking awesome. I just... I don't know. I thought it was so cool. And then, of course, we lose Chadwick Boseman. Now, aside from what that means to an individual's family, to the people that know him, uh, to the people that work with him, you know, I, I can't, I can't compare that to my own personal experience. I mean, it's sad. It certainly is. But uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, crying. And it wasn't, it wasn't that type of experience. For me. It was like, oh gosh, it's, who would have thunk it? Like it's ah. But then the the realization sets in that. All those kids lost their hero. And that fucking hurts. Uh, and the decision is made to continue forward and uh, write the character out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a tribute to uh, Chadwick Boseman. Now, whether you agree with that or not, that's not what this show is about. I think regardless of what anybody thinks, in 30 or 40 years, if I'm still alive, I'm sure I can pop in an, another Black Panther movie that has a different T'Challa in it. Um, so the character is not gone forever. The character lives on in comic books, but that is sort of where we're at when it comes to Wakanda forever. It looks like an ensemble piece. You know, I played the trailer for you up top. And why did I do that? Because it, to me, it, <laughs> I know I did this on Thor Love and Thunder, but that fucking Wakanda forever teaser trailer has to be a top three trailer of all time. It's so fucking good. But, uh, yeah, Wakanda Forever is looking like an ensemble piece, and I'm absolutely here for that. So that's sort of, you know, that's the gist of where we're at. Let's talk about what I'm excited for, okay? I am excited for Namor, the fucking Submariner. I am obviously a huge fan of Aquaman over in the DC Universe. Now, I'm a fan of Aquaman more so uh, because of the character and what the character represents to me. I just think Namor is great, okay? Now, Namor the Submariner is uh, a lot of things to the Marvel brand, okay? But I'm just going to hit the highlights, all right? Namor the Submariner has been around for fucking ever. He's one of the original invaders. Uh, like, he's in World War II comics teaming up with Captain America, Bucky, and the original Human Torch. Don't ask, just Google it. I'm not going to explain it, but it's not Johnny Storm. Um... So having Namor come into the MCU this late in the game is to me is a little ridiculous, but I get it. 
You know, I get it. I also think it's a little ridiculous to introduce him after DC has already just done like its own big budget, pretty successful Aquaman film. And and it's absolutely absolutely necessitated some changes to the Namor character here in this Wakanda Forever version. But one of the things I love about Namor is that he is absolutely a king first and a superhero like 17th. Namor just does what he wants for his people, and that's pretty much it. He is not an anti-hero like Black Adam, because Black Adam was pretty lame. I like Black Adam in the comics, but not the movie. Listen to the show. I just did one on North-South. He's not an anti-hero like Deadpool. He's just fucking, you know, if a giant monster invades and it's uh, tearing up New York City, you know, Namor's just sitting in his fucking, uh, on his throne, just, you know, having himself a little Saturday, maybe playing, uh, playing some video games or something. And then the monster gets, like, right to the edge of the ocean, and he'll pop out and be like, all right, fuck you, monster, and that's the end of that. He, he has no reason to care about the surface world. And I've always dug that about him. I also dig that he's a prick and a horny guy, too. Namor the Submariner is constantly flirting with Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, and it's tremendous every time it happens in comics. With a good writer, God help me, I'm going to say this out loud, you can feel the sexual tension even in a comic book. But the thing I like the most about Namor the Submariner uh, comes from... Uh, the New Avengers, Avengers Run, written by Jonathan Hickman, where he is at odds with T'Challa. Oh, man, it is so fucking good. And you see a lot of conflict between Atlantis and Wakanda. Pause, because we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Next thing I'm most excited for is the tone of this film. From the trailers to me, and hey, see Thor Love and Thunder. I've been burned by good trailers before, but it really seems to me like, the tone of this picture is going to be, dare I say, absolutely no pun intended, deadly serious. Alright? Now, I'm sure it's a Marvel movie. There there will have to be some jokes. But God help me, are we actually going to use these types of high-concept sci-fi stories to tell stories about the real human experience? Oh, God help me, I hope so. Because I am so tired of going to see these Marvel films where it's just a joke a minute. I'm not trying to sound like a guy on the internet. Maybe I don't know any better. I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy talking into a microphone, okay? I don't have credentials or anything like that. I just know what I feel. And I'm so tired of walking out of the theater with the same type of feelings. I want to feel something different. And I think hope. This is the movie to do it. And the last, and that sort of pivots into the last thing. Ryan Coogler, I'm excited to see him directing this film again. I'm really not a huge Creed fan. I don't know that really matters. I know he's directed that as well. It's fine. Um, I just, Black Panther was so immersive. It took the time to make Wakanda feel like a real place where real things happen to real people. And I feel like, if you've already committed to that in your first film, obviously the second film uh, problem is always bigger, doesn't equal better. But I really feel like this director is going to make sure we continue to slow down and really inhabit the world so we can feel what the characters are feeling. That's my hope for this. Now, what am I not excited for? I hit pause earlier when I said T'Challa and Namor at odds. I'm not excited for the fact that... Uh, you know, that's not going to happen. T'Challa is gone. And Namor... Now, Namor can do this with other characters, but, you know, as a comics nerd, when I see something on the big screen that I'm a fan of in the books, I'm always do that little... <laughs> and, like, knee the guy in the elbow, like, hey, that's from the comics! I don't know, it's just... 
I'm going to miss it. I understand, and it's not a criticism. You, you kind of have to do it. You, you have to miss out on it. It's just the way that life has gone. But, uh, you know, I, I would like to uh, be able to see that at some point. But I do hope then Namor gets to have some great interaction with the other Wakandan leaders like Angela Bassett. I'm really excited to see her, actually. I just didn't want to... I'm excited about a lot, but I didn't want this thing to run forever. Uh, so I am going to miss T'Challa and Namor's interaction. Uh, the next thing isn't as huge, but I like Umbaku, the man-ape, as he's known to the comics. Uh, I think Winston Duke is tremendous. Uh, he steals every scene he's in in the first film. And God help me, he even sort of steals a little bit of Avengers Endgame. You know, when, when the portals open, Avengers assemble, and they run at everybody, there's this great moment where he just yells, DIE! And he smacks this fucking alien in the face with his staff. Like, I don't know, I'm a big Umbaku fan, and I feel like... And you know, Umbaku's not like a huge character, but I feel like with, with Chadwick Boseman gone... Um, you know, the script can maybe give a little wiggle room to to include Umbaku a little bit more, perhaps to break the tension, maybe. And I, I'm not getting a lot of him in the trailers, but they could be holding back. I don't know. Um, but he's a good character. And this has nothing to do with wanting to see a man come to the forefront. I could care less. Um, I've got zero problems. Uh, I, I just like Winston Duke, man. I think he's great. I like him a lot in Us. Um he, he's he's doing some good stuff uh, playing Batman in an audio drama. I just I like Winston Duke, and I just want, I hope he's here. To, you know, I hope they give him a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. You know what I mean? It's like uh, I really love Yaya Abdul Mantine the second as well, uh, and I hope the second Aquaman movie really dives in and uses Black Adam to the fullest extent. I love that guy; he's tremendous in Watchmen. So you know, it's just a couple of guys in comic book movies that I feel you know. Water-based villains, yeah, in comic movies, so they share this comic book trope. But just a couple of actors I really like whenever I see them in anything, and um, seeing them in a big ensemble, I'm always worried that they're going to get the short end of the stick. Like Yaya was in uh, the Matrix Four, and I, he was fine. I actually liked the Matrix Four quite a bit, but you know he wasn't used a lot. And I'm like, man, you've got him. He's right there. Like, just use him. So I hope that doesn't happen to Winston Duke. The last thing I'm not excited for is Shuri. Now. Pause. Okay, here's what I mean by that. You know, I talked about T'Challa and Namor being at odds with one another in Jonathan Hickman's Avengers run. In that run, which is really when I first got introduced to Wakanda big time, Shuri is the Black Panther and Shuri is the Queen of Wakanda. It's just that T'Challa is the King of the Dead at the time. So I got no problem with the Shuri character inheriting the mantle. If she does, that's not a spoiler. I haven't seen the movie. I've just seen the trailers, okay? Uh, but it's probably Shuri. Uh, but I just don't know if Letitia Wright, who I believe is the actress, and I only know, I'm only saying this because I've only seen her in Avengers and Black Panther 1, and that's my fault. I just don't know what kind of range she has as an actress. So I'm, I'm excited to be excited about her performance. Uh, I just don't know what she's going to bring to this. I don't know if she can carry this piece. Uh, and we will see. We will see in just a little bit. Oh, I forgot to mention Ironheart. I am excited for Ironheart. Uh, I've read all of Brian Bendis's uh, Riri Williams' Ironheart arc. It's interesting to me because Ironheart is so closely linked to Tony Stark, it's ridiculous. Ironically, in the comics, when Ironheart first starts to tinker with making a suit, Tony Stark is also dead. Uh, but she has like a hologram AI of Tony Stark that she talks to all the time. That's basically her therapist, her assistant, her Jarvis, if you will. And uh, I like that back and forth. I'm just curious um, 
without having Robert Downey Jr. around, and you don't have to tie the character into Tony Stark. Honestly, it, it can only be a skin-deep uh, connection. You know, we have the same type of power set, etc. It doesn't matter to me, but it's just, I, I'm interested to see what take they give. Uh, and, of course, Ironheart will be leaping into her own Disney Plus series in the near future. But, yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I am very excited. Um I don't want to ramble too long. I think that uh, we should probably get into spoiler territory now. Uh, And folks, I'm really, really asking you here on this one. If you haven't seen the film, don't do yourself a disservice by listening to this before. Because I'm going to spoil this shit out of it. Because I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. However, fucking, if you're feeling froggy, go ahead and leap on over to the other side. I'm going to head to Wakanda. And we'll be back, well... Pretty much instantly, due to the power of podcasting. We know what you whisper. All right, North South Connection listeners, thanks so much for coming back for the spoiler-filled take on Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Now, a little bit of bad news for you up front. Well, maybe bad, maybe good. I guess it depends on your listening style. If you really enjoyed uh, the last couple of times I've done this, where I reviewed uh, Multiverse of Madness and Thor Love and Thunder, and I kind of went off my rocker with anger and rage and nerd shit. Oh, and Black Adam, too. Ooh, I hated that movie. This is not going to be a listen for you, because Johnny C is going to be very positive in this conversation. And you know what? I'm overdue for a positive take on a new movie. It's been a while, I feel like. Ever since, the I think the Batman was the last time I had an overwhelmingly positive review. Top Gun Maverick, maybe, but uh, here we are. Uh, And once again, just last time, spoilers. Okay, now I don't want to go through this bad boy beat by beat. There's a lot to digest here, and if you've seen the film, you already know what happens beat by beat. But man, this was a rich film that gave me such good feels in terms of its presentation, the way it was made, and how it was able to, for 93, I'm going to make up some random high number, 93% of this film felt like it was done because the filmmaker wanted it to happen. And that's probably the highest highest praise I can give any of these Marvel films. Ryan Coogler was able to create a narrative and create thematic elements of his and the scriptwriter's design rather than bow to Marvel superiority. Now, look, I am not some sort of fucking person who's angry and bitchy about Marvel and Disney ruling the world or like, uh, you know, said, oh, well, you know, that's just because they want to sell toys. Like, it's That's not what I'm saying. Especially recently in Marvel films, there has been so much tonally, and it feels like the tone 
is a big part of, is a big victim of this. The tone of these films is consistent across all of them, which means that no one film feels like an individual piece of art or feels any different from the other. But right from the get-go, Wakanda Forever lets you know that it's going to be different. The sound design in this film is my first talking point. Whether it's the use of sound or the absence of sound as well. Um, you know, it starts with Shuri offering... Well, I guess we're going to start to start because just, you know, it's a blank screen and all we hear is her voice. And all we hear is Shuri praying to the panther god Bast that she will be able to save her brother. Okay? And, and since it's the only sense that we can use at the time because we can't see anything... That statement stands out to us. And it's such an amazing representation of how in our quiet, desperate moments, we sort of throw logic away. You know, what is the old catchphrase? There are no atheists in foxholes. I mean, look, I'm not a very religious person. If I was hemorrhaging on the table and conscious and I'd... I could see myself being like, oh, God, forgive me, or something. Like, I, like I'm not trying to get so fucking deep, all right? And we're making it about me when, obviously, this is about Chadwick Boseman and his character. Like, I'm just saying that it that that moment really resonates because she's all alone in this elevator waiting to get into her lab. And yikes, what an amazing, amazing way to start a movie about a person who has no faith. Um, sound is used by... Uh, oh God, I'm going to mispronounce that. I don't want to. The Talic, the Taliconians, the Atlanteans, the, the citizens of Talicon, you know, they have the sirens that sing the song that lead people to their death. One of my biggest regrets is I've only seen this film once and here I am the next day trying to regurgitate the themes. There's got to be something about information as a weapon here, perhaps, because the siren song leads these people who are following orders to their death in most cases, whether it's Wakandan military personnel um, in the in the middle of the film that uh, are ordered to defend Wakanda, or whether it's these American uh, workers that are ordered to find vibranium at the bottom of the ocean. Um, I really... And, and when you combine that with the fact with the uh, SWAT team, or the Special Forces team in the beginning, that is not led to death by the Wakandans. They're brought back to their French overlords. There's something here about sound slash information as a weapon. And you know what? That's one of the best parts about this film. Whether or not you choose to believe that or not is totally fine. It's like, I never believed in symbolism. And then I got into a big debate with my sophomore English teacher about whether or not the uh, eyes of T.J. Eckelberg in The Valley of Ashes and The Great Gatsby was representative of God. And I didn't believe it. And then I decided to just go with it, and I realized how powerful symbolism was, and I've been a symbolism junkie ever since. So if you don't want to believe that, that's totally fine. It's just that this film is a rich palette and tapestry of ideas and themes. And God love it for being that. It is all the stuff you expect it to be. It's a moving tribute to Chadwick Boseman, the person. It's a moving tribute to what the Black Panther film 
means to the black community and to Marvel fans and to cinema and all the things that it accomplished with its amazing box office dominance and to have it all ripped away or the feeling that we had it all ripped away from us. Uh, well, I say us in terms of me being a fan of Marvel. I'm not a black person and I, 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 I don't understand. I empathize and, you know, believe that, uh, um, Unfortunately, there's racism around every corner, but I hope that the success of Black Panther was one small uplifting thing that they could embrace, and and I can't imagine what it would feel like to have that ripped away from you. Now, obviously, we're talking about a movie, um, but art does a lot for people. It up it uplifts people. It, it inspires people. And I'm not saying that uh, you know having a movie taken away is the same thing like having your civil rights violated or. Um, being discriminated against, please don't take it that way. Uh, that's not a conversation or rabbit hole I, I was going to leap down, but here I am talking to a microphone, and I feel like it might be a relevant piece of information, but I am not trying to um, belittle or bemoan or uh, anything like that. Okay, so just, yeah. But I just love that this film, aside from being all those things that it should be for real-life situations, is a film that is able to weave in thematic elements. The use of politics, sovereignty, sovereignty the use of um, manipulation, dramatic irony as well. Queen Ramonda is willing to do anything possible to get back Shuri after she voluntarily goes to Telecon. And you know what? This kind of shit happens all the time. It probably happens in movies that I love, but I, there was just this overwhelming sense of dramatic irony because of the politics in play. We, the audience, knew, of course, that Shuri is safe. Like, yeah, she's with the Submariner, but she's relatively safe. And Ramonda is about to start World War III to get her back. I don't want to call it Shakespearean. Uh, Eric George would punch me in the face and be like, Johnny, see, you're using it wrong. And I, and I say that jokingly, but it's like... Maybe it's because I've been depriving myself of such great cinema lately, but I was so into it, like, oh, Queen Mavona doesn't know. I know, but she doesn't know. It, it just was brilliant to me. It's the best use of real-world politics in a superhero film since Dawn of Justice. Now, I know that a lot of people's um, opinions on that film waver, but I'm a sucker for a good uh, Congress or uh, a big hearing in superhero films because, to me... It goes to show how these crazy, wacky comic book scenarios would influence a quote-unquote real world. Yes, if Wakanda had these resources available to it, other countries would try to obtain it. And then what would happen in regards to world politics if, you know, this happened and the Wakandans, you know, defeat, you know, caught the French and were like, look, dude. Yeah, I could easily declare war against France right now, but I'm choosing not to. Not only am I going to do that, I'm going to hand you these soldiers. You know, I didn't cry much in this film. I cried during the Marvel signature briefly. Um, and, I, and I audibly gasped, oh, when they brought in the French soldiers, because it's like there's so much plausible deniability Oh, but here's the team that's all French, by the way, that we're delivering back to you. Jean, Jean Rougeau, Jacques Rougeau, yep, French military, yep, no denying it now. Wow, can you imagine if the fabulous Rougeau brothers were part of this Wakandan invasion force? Hey, parlez-vous français! Memphis, Tennessee, number one! Can we have some vibranium? That's a really shitty Jacques Rougeau impression, but you get what I'm going for. But each scene in this film seemed to matter and actually push forward the narrative. There was no, well... I said 93% earlier. I'll get to the other 7%. But there, there's no real random divergent t uh, paths for 
random sake. There's no random movement. Like, like the inclusion of Ironheart. And we're going to talk about all the characters after we talk about the themes. But it's like, we need to go get Ironheart. That's an oversimplification. But there's a reason to bring Ironheart into this. It felt very much like uh, the Dark Knight in terms of each scene naturally leading us to the next movement of the film. And, and I thank it so much for that. Unlike this hodgepodge nonsense we've been getting from Marvel lately. And you know, it's it's really pathetic because movie, like good films do this all the time. But to get it from this product that has become overwhelmingly bleh and overwhelmingly just cookie cutter repetition of one another, it's kind of bad. Like I don't want to belittle the accomplishments of this film, but I do realize that I am praising it for doing what good films do. I guess I'm just so overwhelmingly amazed that a film of this stature came out of this production house. Um, So that's kind of where I'm coming from. This is a very minor thing, but we get a lot of on-screen text in this film. Uh, the subtitles, I love and very much appreciate it, obviously, because they're speaking foreign languages. But I, if I'm not mistaken, I am very colorblind, but I felt like the... Uh, damn it, I almost called them Atlanteans again. The Talicon, the Taliconians, the citizens of Talicon, their dialogue was font was shaded a little blue, and Submariners wasn't. I can't maybe misremembering that, but I really appreciated that little difference. It just... It stood out to me, but we also got a lot of on-screen text identifying locations, which is totally fine. But, And I mean to say this as a good thing, but it very much felt like we wouldn't see a location until it was necessary because of the dramatic elements that are necessary. It's sort of like, well, we need to find a scientist. Where could the scientist be? I need to go find someone who knows what a scientist is. Is this what a scientist is? I think so. And then we go to MIT, and it's like Boston, Massachusetts. It very much felt like a role-playing video game to me. But I mean that in a good way. You know, if you're playing Legend of Zelda and you find the Fire Temple, it's like, oh shit, I can't get to the Fire Temple until I go to the Water Temple. So, you know, when you go to the area where the Water Temple is, it flashes on screen, the Water Temple. And you're like, good, this is where I need to be. I'm comfortable now. I shouldn't be at the Fire Temple because I need to be at the Water Temple. And it made the film feel very much like it was singularly focused on what we needed to accomplish in this locale. And then, when it's appropriate, we'll go. There's not, like, cross-cutting between, like, uh, oh, we need to see what Iron Man's up to. What's Captain America up to? What's Hawkeye up to? And then we return to these locations. It's very much a through line of natural progression. Again, good films are supposed to do that. I just wanted to point it out because it jumped out to me. Um... Let's talk about the humor in this film, or should I say lack of humor, or should I say not lack of humor, but humor that was appropriate for when it was introduced and actually not garbage humor. You know, there's this overwhelming sense of, or Marvel way of doing humor, where it's like we uh, comment on the obvious, or, and action films do this too. Um, I was just re-watching Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the last couple of weeks and there's this scene where Indy like crashes a motorcycle into a library and then barely stops in front of a kid right before you know running him over and and the kid's like oh hey Dr. Jones I'm glad you're here can you help me solve this equation and it's it you know audience big laugh ha 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 but it's this very much thing of like oh isn't it funny this kid almost got ran over by a motorcycle but he just kind of no sold it I'm so tired of that humor and that's all over Marvel you know it's like Dr. Strange kills Shuma Goroth with a giant fucking 
knife in his eye, and he's like, well, I certainly have an eye for danger. <laughs> or bad puns and shit like that. Like, I'm just tired of it. And, um, you know, there was a little bit with the Dora Milaje, with the Koye, when they go to MIT talking about her makeup. But, you know, we had had so much heavy-handed stuff, which is good, that I was willing to believe that these two friends might actually have a moment of levity between one another. Uh, also, the dynamite uh, other time that I laughed out loud in this film after Shuri visits the uh, the ancestral plane and Riri Williams is like, can I get some of that shit? Being the Black Panther herb. I mean, because, yeah, right? That's, I mean, I truly believe that the Riri Williams character would be down for that. Like, you know, because she's always felt outmatched and overpowered since she became uh, a victim of circumstances here. But so it was funny. But it was also believable for the character. It wasn't funny to be funny. Because back to this Indiana Jones example, I don't know anything about this kid in the library, but him no-selling near death isn't funny to me because it doesn't seem like a human moment. It doesn't seem like a real thing. It doesn't seem organic. So thank God for reigning the humor in check. I mean, there might be more to it. Perhaps I was so caught up in the film that I didn't notice it, but I guess that means that it was done just right. You know, M'Baku's a little funny here and there, but that's totally okay. He's kind of a bombastic character. Um, I, I didn't like the moment. Okay, there is one humor moment that now I'm thinking about stands out to me. When Queen Ramonda is addressing the UN and we're flashing back to the Dora Milaje defeating these French invaders, uh, she's arguing with Annika about the, uh, the energy blades, the energy daggers. That was a little... Because the sound design and the score in that scene was amazing, and the cross-cutting between Ramonda giving her, I wouldn't call it a threat, but giving her warning, and and then this battle, and it's like, wow, Wakanda really is powerful, but we're kind of cutting to have like a minor conversation that has humor. Eh. Eh. But the, the beginning was hard for a lot of folks, so maybe it was necessary, and I'm just thinking about it too hard. But I really, really appreciate the reigning in of fucking Marvel humor. Just all around. I mean, it's, you know, I've been waxing on it for a few minutes here, but I just, I've really enjoyed this film, obviously. But the, the through lines are fantastic. Um, the mirroring of Talakon and Wakanda, both as these nation states that really just want the same thing, ostensibly. Um, but the way they want to go about, do, about doing it through their leadership being very different. I mean, it makes sense. They're mere images of one another, literally in their stance towards the greater world, but they're also mirror images figuratively because one is on top of the surface and one is underwater, so they mirror one another. I mean, you know, it might sound a little cheesy, but it makes complete sense to me. I would argue in this film that the least interesting moments were actually the action scenes, and the action scenes were top-notch. So there you go. But I was so drawn into the narrative and what the characters were actually experiencing, except especially Shuri. We'll get to that. Man, was I wrong. Happily wrong about Shuri. Um, So the action is amazing in the film. It's really well done. Not a ton of it, which is great. I will say, the third act, it came quickly, and it escalated quickly, and then it reached a natural conclusion, which felt small because it was between the two characters, being Shuri and Namor, that needed to have the confrontation. I don't want to call it underwhelming, but, you know, it wasn't 
it was interesting because it stood out to me as being a little muted considering the stakes that seemed to be at play. But of course, the fight between the Black Panther and the Submariner was great. Um, and it was full of emotion, which is important. The special effects are important, but at the same time, I'd rather have a, a reason that these special effects are on my screen. So if you're a little underwhelmed by the third act, which I feel like I may have been, you know, really take a couple, try to take a thousand yard stare, stance back and be like, you know what? I feel like I'm underwhelmed only because the amount of punch, kick, punch, kick I got on screen maybe wasn't what I was expecting. But the time that they had uh, was better spent on the small scale confrontation between Shuri and the Submariner, in my opinion. And I think upon repeat viewings, when you have your expectations in check, the third act will be made all that more powerful because you know what you're getting into and you know that the important resolution is between Shuri and the Submariner as opposed to whether or not Umbaku can take out 10 Atlanteans with his uh, stick. And that's okay. That's what a good movie should do. But we know that in the background, should Shuri fail and Namor win, or vice versa, depending on who you're rooting for, that there will be greater consequences at play. But I didn't really feel like anybody was in danger, except for Shuri and Namor. You know, I didn't think because of the all the dramatic weight was over on the one-on-one confrontation, so I wasn't really afraid that, like, Nakia, for example, was going to die in this fight, because the fight wasn't the the big battle, if you will, wasn't the primary focus. Uh, it was beautifully shot, beautifully put together. I'm not trying to shortchange that, but all the dramatic tension was elsewhere. So if the battle underwhelms you, just keep in mind, it's because the important shit is happening on the beach. <laughs> there's a feeling there's a joke there somewhere. All the important shit's happening on the beach, but I'm not going to make it. But the through line there uh, being that this film is a rich palette uh, created by Ryan Coogler, of themes and elements that come together to form a cohesive narrative that has emotional stakes, uh, it has emotional beats for the characters, and they take a journey that finds a resolution as well. Yes, that's what a movie's supposed to do, but getting it from Marvel and getting it well done from Marvel and getting it without the Marvel brand of spectacle is so welcome. I just absolutely Love it, and I hope you guys all did too. But what I want to do now is transition into talking about the individual characters, which of course will cover more beat-by-beat sort of stuff, but there's a lot of characters here. There's some really great performances, there's some standouts, there's some surprises, and then we'll get into sort of the the couple elements that stand out as being uh, Marvel, which aren't bad, but at the same time, a little bit there's a little bit of sore thumb syndrome here in the way that they stand out. Okay, so let's start with Queen Ramonda. You know, Angela Bassett is a... I mean, we all know she's a tremendous actress. I didn't realize how much material she was going to have to really sink her teeth into here. She's tremendous. Um, She is regal when necessary. She's stern when necessary. She's human when necessary. She's emotional when necessary. She's irrational when necessary. That is, you know, being able to pull off being irrational might seem like an easy thing to do, but I don't know. I got to think it's kind of difficult because being irrational means you're being guided and dictated usually by your emotions, which means your emotions are believable if you're talking about acting. And, you know, we all know we're watching a performance and we can easily get drawn in, especially when you're in a big, dark multiplex. But I was really impressed. You know, Angela Bassett, like I said, we know she's a great actress, but, you know, I mean... (laughs) 
Robert Downey's great in like Iron Man too, and I'm just go with me here. It's kind of like, all right, you're just kind of you're letting your charisma do the work, though. Here, she's actually using emotional acting to do the work for her because Angela Bassett, while a great actress, she's not like she's not a character that has the ability to be swarmy like Tony Stark or to be a dick like Doctor Strange or to be a big brooding muscle like <laughs> oblivious guy like Thor. So Queen Ramonda is just a human. And I'm not talking about metahumans, mutants, or superpowered individuals. It's just that she's just a person. Now, granted, she is a queen. She is a representative of her entire nation. But what she's dealing with is very personal, and she's propped up to do the things that she's asked to do for the nation. Just really good stuff. Really great interactions with all of the other actors in the film. The, per- the performance where she strips Okoye of her role as general of Wakanda. Damn! I mean, I know I've played the trailer. We've all heard it a hundred times. But even though I knew she was going to say, uh, what does she say? I am the uh, most powerful. I am the leader of the most powerful nation in the world. Have I not given everything? That's a really bad impression. I love the accent. I'm not trying to mock it at all. But she rolls it so like, even though I knew it was coming, I was like, God damn, you're in charge. <laughs> you know, it was really good. Um, so just what a great role. I, I, Ah, Oscar, question mark, like best supporting. Like, I'm telling you, without her, this movie doesn't hold together at all. She's not the lead. I mean, what else What else does she qualify for? Best supporting. Huh? I'm serious here. Like, this is a great example of a performance by a supporting actor that makes the movie a cohesive whole. Well, well done. And I at least hope that, you know, maybe not. I don't know if she'll get an Oscar nomination. I just hope... You know, Black Panther was nominated for Best Picture. Of course, that's when they had 10, I believe. But at the same time, I don't know. I would just like for, especially in a, in a situation like this, when you're acting in a Marvel film, to get what she got out of her performance. I don't know. I feel like that extra, that's sort of an extra caveat on top of the just really good performance, what she was able to do in this environment. So let's talk about Okoye. Uh, Donnie Guerrero, I believe is her name. Uh, or she was great. She's always usually pretty good in these things. Um, I like that she has sort of a narrative of failure. She's always sort of been untouchable in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we, we saw her in some of the Avengers films. She's, I don't know, she doesn't lose fights. You know, she's, and that's fine. I'm not saying that she's like written poorly. I'm just saying that she's a superhero, basically. So to see her get taken down a couple of notches, but organically, and to have the performance be believable, you know, the, she's, she's begging and pleading, and she's, it's such a, it's such a nice dichotomy, because she's such a powerful presence and character, you know, she intimidates characters like Riri Williams just by standing there, and here she is, uh, being stripped of everything by the queen, and she is just completely vulnerable, and she brought it. Uh, in terms of what the character actually does throughout the movie, I, the Midnight, they kind of dropped the ball on the Midnight Angels a little bit. Eh, whatever. I, I don't know that... I wasn't clamoring for it. I'm familiar with, uh, you know, that the run, the intergalactic uh, Kingdom of Wakanda. That, this is all nerdy stuff. Uh, you know, so I'm familiar with the concept. It's just kind of like, whatever. I don't know uh, what it will bring in the future. Uh, I am feeling like the Marvel world as a whole is getting really bogged down by people wearing mech suits, but, uh, you know, whatever. 
it's the least of my complaints here when I'm given all of the things that this movie is giving me. Uh, it's just sort of the marvelization. It's an extra sort of Marvel thing that stands out to me, but whatever. It's fine. I got nothing against it. I just wanted to bring it up as sort of a, eh, I don't know if it works all the way, but it's fine. Mbaku! Winston Duke! Man, he really brought levity when we needed it. I also like that his character, even though he spent the entire first film coming to terms with the fact that, you know, even though they're sort of outside of Wakanda, they are all one Wakanda, I like that he still acted as a counterpoint. You know, his character wasn't neutered, and I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, to the point where he was a yes man. You know, he's able to give the queen his opinion. He is able to sort of think logically in some situations, which is kind of funny because sometimes he's very illogical, like, oh, big man beat up with stick. Like, I'm just kidding. But at the same time, you know, Umbaku can sometimes be dictated by his emotions. Um, But Winston Duke, I'm glad he was here. He got actually more to do than I thought he would. He had a great scene with Shuri at Queen Ramona's funeral. Um, he had some pretty good action scenes as well. I thought for sure he was dead when he took that million-dollar punch from Namor. I call it the million-dollar punch because uh, oh, there was a gag years ago. In the Matrix Revolutions, there's a shot where uh, Neo punches Agent Smith, and it's like full CGI slow motion, and they called it the million-dollar punch because it took like a million dollars to render. It's kind of funny in retrospect because it doesn't really look that great and this shot was fine but it was sort of done the same way like super slow motion intricately watch the armor rip apart and ripple uh so yeah he, namor hits him with the million dollar punch i thought he was dead i thought that was the whole point of showing us every inch of the impact to be like well umbaku might have had some vibranium armor but the dude's dead what are you gonna do about it and i was like no umbaku uh but i like he was kind of sure he's big brother and i love that he's positioned as the king here um, you know, one of the things that I was maybe, uh, they sort of undo it at the very, very, very end. Not, they don't do when Mbaku as king, but I was like, man, is this the end of the T'Chaka line? Because, you know, we have King T'Chaka, and then we have T'Challa, and then Ramonda, and then Shuri would be queen. And I was thinking to myself, is the whole point of this entire narrative that, you know, sometimes through loss and grief, and circumstance, uh, it leads us on a different path. And I was like, is this sort of the story of the end of this line ruling Wakanda? Uh, and when they uh, finalized Umbaku showing up with as to challenge and the queen not being there, so him obviously becoming the new king, I was like, man, they're really doing this. They're really like ending the bloodline uh, that used to that ruled Wakanda for generations, like to show that you know it's time to to go a different direction like the fates have decided and this is the end of the royal family and uh you know we'll get there but they sort of show that well you know they can always come back and challenge with maybe a different contender but um i do love that he's now left as the king of wakanda if nothing else because if wakanda comes back and other mcu movies we'll get to see more winston duke and more umbaku ironheart riri williams uh dominique harris question mark shit nah i didn't write it down uh, a good performance like she's fine here the, but what the the best thing the character does is act as the MacGuffin, which is you know sort of a weird thing to say because it's like uh you know if she's just the MacGuffin, how can she really be that interesting but she's the MacGuffin because of everything she represents from a political standpoint you know she's the uh scientist that invented the machine that can detect vibranium 
which leads the Americans to almost unearthing Talakan and, you know, sparks the fear from Namor that his people and his society will be discovered and a war will come. I like that the invention that she made to the character, this invention that could potentially alter the entire history of mankind is something she just did to prove that she could do it. It kind of means nothing to her. I like that, you know, there's the, the whole thing about, uh, you know, they say that if they could take back uh, the splitting of the atom and the hydrogen bomb, uh, that they wouldn't, that, you know, if they knew what it would do, they would have never done it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, they, they sort of just, science sometimes does things to see if it can be done, and then the repercussions are a result of that. It's like, well, now it's proven that you can do this, so let's do it, but that's a bad idea. Yeah, but let's do it anyway. Um, I just sort of love that accidental science changing mankind sort of view. Um, this Riri Williams, we don't get to spend a lot of time with her emotionally or her mentally. Uh, I don't want to say she's one note because I don't think that she is. This is sort of a, sort of a Marvel, uh, one of the smaller Marvel problems of this movie. And the way I the way I thought about it was this: like I'm willing to go that she has Stark tech and she's a genius and she built a basically Mark One Ironheart suit. They don't actually ever call her Ironheart in the movie, and it doesn't really make sense when she busts the the heart. I don't know. It's irrelevant. It's fine. I'm just picking at straws here. There's really it's not a big problem. But to me, it's sort of like if um, if there's a Superman film and it revolves around Superman having to keep Dick Grayson safe from Black Adam, for example. And, you know, halfway through the movie, uh, Dick Grayson's like, hey, you know, I mean, if Black Adam comes back, I'm also Nightwing, so I can defend myself to a certain extent. And it's like, wait, you're Nightwing? Like, you you used to... Bruce Wayne's Batman? Like, like, they don't really take any time to really slow down and explain Riri Williams to me. And I know that's because she's getting her own Disney Plus show, and that's totally fine. It's just... Her individual character and her involvement in the conflict as Ironheart is sort of something you just have to go with in terms of the film, and that's okay. I'm probably aided by the fact that I get like I know Riri Williams because I've read her, you know, I've read her first, uh, you know, arc that Bendis did, and I've read a little bit of her solo after that. So I, I sort of know all the things, and I can pick up little things and little hints that they put down to her uh, origins and things like that, and I have no problem with it. It's just, you know, she's sort of just here, and you just kind of go with the Ironheart stuff. But hey, I love the Ironheart suit. She looks like Samus from Metroid, in a good way, but I was loving the suit. Although, of course, you know, she can't take the suit with her at the end, and she's just sure he's like, hey, thanks for helping out. I'll see you on Disney+. Plus. Like, it's sort of... I don't know. It's it's fine, really. I don't mean it to come across. I mean, it's. I think it's worth noting because it's the some of the marvelization of this great film. But uh, I'm totally willing to go with it. It's really not that egregious. But you got to be fair. you got to be honest, I feel like, when you talk about these things. So I'll be following her to Disney+. Plus. I'm sure a lot of people will, hopefully. Uh, I know she's going up against the hood, which is a... I'm blown away that the hood's going up against Ironheart, but let's fucking go for it. And uh, we'll see what she gets up to there. Namor the Submariner. A pretty pitch-perfect Namor here. Almost Joker-esque. Now, what does that mean, or what do I mean by that? Namor 
Well, first of all, the act uh, the acting is tremendous. Like, um, God, I forget the gentleman's name, but uh, you know, he really delivers a performance that puts him on the map. I feel like in Hollywood. However, what I mean by Joker esque is that Namor's every move and every action, every conversation that he has, is very well calculated to affect the plot in the way that it needs to, and I feel like that elevates the actor's performance. Now, if this guy couldn't cut the mustard with his performance, it wouldn't be as fun to go on the ride, but everything he says, every riddle wrapped in an enigma, every breadcrumb that he drops, every moment of truth that he has, you know, forces characters to make a decision that affects the plot. He doesn't really just... You know, he doesn't have an evil villain speech, because he's not a truly evil villain, in a sense. He doesn't have some sort of grand scheme to detonate a bomb and, you know, make cold Gotham for ransom. And it's just like, no, he's he's a political maneuver guy type guy. I mean, everything gets him closer to the result that he wants, including yielding to Shuri at the end. Now we have an ally that feels empathy for us. And now... Uh, we, we have this alliance, and it's absolutely what I wanted. Sure, I didn't want to get the shit kicked out of me, but it worked out for us in the end. Um, he was great with Angela Bassett. He was ruthless when he needed to be. Man, the wings, they really pulled it off. I, I mean, you know, they really fucking pulled off the wings. I have to admit it. He did call himself a mutant, which is the elbow nudge moment. I do like the idea that... You know, this solidifies Namor as the first mutant in Marvel's history because it was back in the past. I'm wondering if they can somehow find a way to identify that mutants with the X gene is a result of perhaps individuals from Telecon who maybe left and went out into the real world and had children and they had children and then they had children. And, you know you know what I'm saying here? Like trace it back to a genetic line and breeding. Um, and it spreads, you know, just the way that our genes do in our culture. I think that would be fantastic and interesting. And it submits that the Submariner is the first uh, Marvel mutant. Um, it doesn't stand out he doesn't pause for five minutes to be like, I'm, I was born a mutant. Now, let me explain what the mutant is. You see, well, actually, let me bring in my friend, Professor Charles Xavier. But, Professor, please explain this. Yes, I'll be happy to name all. You see, mutants are a car when 20th Century Fox is sold to Disney. And mutants emerge when enough nerds complain on Marvel.com and do at Marvel Twitter uh, flames and say things like, I want to see the X-Men in Marvel films. Now, Nemo, have I adequately described a mutant X-Gene? Well, no matter how hard you try, Charles, someone's still going to bitch, so I'll take back over the movie, please. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Namor. I'll see you in the next inevitable crossover, Avengers the Kang Dynasty. Thank you, Charles. But yeah, there's the, the movie doesn't stop like the podcast just did for me to do that gag. So I really appreciated that. And I, I talked about the wings. All you people that saw the movie that listened to this... Uh, if anyone out there didn't, you probably won't enjoy this as much. Did you grab your Achilles when Shuri sliced his fucking wing in half? Oh, I felt the pain on that. Because, you know, we've seen people get punched in movies a trillion times. But it's not often you see somebody get the slice to the back of the foot. Oh, God. It, but it's such a wonderful inclusion, too. My audience was kind of quiet and subdued, which I, I've seen in my area a lot. Maybe I just don't live in an area where people love to get rambunctious in movies, uh, which is fine because they don't distract. But I, I, I like a little audience participation. But when Namor's fucking wing gets sliced, there was 
gasps like people gasp as a reflex action. I love it. That just shows how effective it was when mom in the front row, who doesn't like to you know make any noise in a movie, goes, <gasps> you know, I'm like, yeah, they got you. And they got me too because I was like, oh, God, that looks like it fucking hurts. Um, and of course... Uh, well, actually, I'm going to pause. I'm going to save that for last. Talicon as the new Atlantis or as a replacement for Atlantis. I love the society. Um, it looked great. I love that... Um, now, look, I, I obviously am a DC guy. I like Aquaman quite a bit. I like that Talicon and Atlantis and DC feel different. That's just a nerd thing. But I like that it wasn't super tech-based. It felt more like it, uh, you know, like a builder society or like a society built by hand. You know what I mean? Uh, that was kind of earnest. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I just I, I like that, um, which is the opposite of James Wan's Atlantis over in DC, which is like Final Fantasy underwater. Uh, maybe that's that's probably why I like it, to be honest with you. Or that helps quite a bit. Uh, I'm quite a big Final Fantasy fan, so Final Fantasy underwater just signed me the fuck up. Uh, but I also like Telecon as well. Um, I've, it felt lived in. It felt, dare I say, real, given the circumstances, of course. So, yeah, I'm all for it. I'm glad we've got another unique place to visit here in the Marvel Universe. Um, but even if we never come back to it, it felt perfect as a unit, for as a as a part of this film, because it mirrors Wakanda. Um, and then, finally, and I'm so pissed, I don't even know if I mentioned this in the beginning, but I was hoping to God, like, I was gonna, I was gonna say uh, in my intro, I think I forgot to, that even if the movie's the greatest thing in cinema history, if he doesn't yell Imperious Rex, I'm going to walk out disappointed. And of course, not only did he say Imperious Rex, he did say it in his native tongue, and I was kind of like, oh, uh, I would have preferred him just yelling Imperious Rex, but he said it as a as an act of defiance, and I was like, ooh, that's a good Imperious Rex, because, you know, I'm used to Imperious Rex before a battle or in a battle when he's like Hulk it up. Um, but having him say it as a defiant, you know, quote unquote, last words to Shuri, I was like, damn, that is a dynamite use of Imperious Rex. If you're not familiar with Imperious Rex, that's sort of Namor's own personal Avengers assemble, Titans together, that sort of thing. That's his go to, it's his big catchphrase. Um, I'm trying to think of other superheroes. Up, up, and away, although Superman doesn't really say This looks like a job for Superman. Ah, uh, I am vengeance. I am the knight. Um, let's see. Who else has one? Shazam, I guess. That's not really a catchphrase. But yeah, you see what I'm saying here. Imperious Rex is just his thing. Uh, so yeah, perfect. Pitch perfect. Shuri. Letitia Wright. The lead of the film. I was so wrong, and I've never been happy to be so wrong. I was blown away by how much I was into her performance. And it's not that I didn't think that she could pull it off. I just had no, and I hope I was clear about this in the intro, I just I just have no experience. I don't know if she could pull it off. You know, if you tell me you're casting George Clooney in a role as like a asshole salesman, regardless of whether or not I want to watch the movie, I'm like, yeah, okay, I buy it, sure. I've seen George Clooney do that before. I'm sure he can do it again. Um, I just didn't have enough of Letitia Wright to to know if she could pull this off, and she really did. Um, I thought she was great. She was vulnerable when necessary. She was uh, passionate, and I liked it. Well, I I hope it. I wasn't aided by my sort of like I kind of align with Shuri in a couple ways, in a sense that she is very rational 
when people ask her to be irrational in certain ways. It's funny because I can watch these movies and talk about symbolism and what they were attending and stuff like that. But this is art. You know, if someone's like, oh, well, it's okay. You know, uh, your brother's with the Panther God now. If I And I'm not very religious. I'd be like, oh, okay, he's with the Panther God. Sure thing. Doing the jerk-off motion. Um, and, but it's sure he's not rude, but she's she's a non-believer. She, you know, she knows the heart-shaped herb is powered and, you know, fueled by vibranium and living in the earth, and it, it enhances the user. Uh, but, you know, she doesn't really buy into the mythical or spiritual connection that it, that it creates. And um, so I kind of connected with that. And, and uh, to me, that means you that you're human. You know, people say things to you like, it's okay. And it's like, well, no, it's not. You're a thousand yards away, so of course it's okay for you. Uh, just to pause from the Shuri thing, I know I wasn't going to go beat by beat, but if I don't talk about this now when it's in my head, I'll miss it. I love the funeral scene in the beginning. Um, I love that the only two people, at least that appear on screen to be like sad, I mean, I'm, they're sad. I'm not saying that. But, like, Queen Ramona and Shuri are crying and things like that as the funeral procession, whereas the rest of Wakanda is choosing to embrace this as a celebration of T'Challa's life. It's like, you know, when someone you love passes away, and, and people do offer you their condolences, and they are serious about it, of course. Um, and people could say things to you like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm recording this today. Kevin Conroy just passed away. Wow, it's so sad. Um, he was the voice of Batman uh, in Batman the Animated Series. Um, and, you know, I- I'm sad about it, okay? Like like sad. I'm doing finger quotes. I mean, it is, it is sad to me. But to me, it's like, wow, Kevin Conroy passed away. Maybe tonight I'll go home and watch Batman Mask of the Phantasm as a way to honor him because that's what he was to me. To the citizens of Wakanda... T'Challa was the king. He was the Black Panther, and they honor him, and they welcome the fact that he was a part of their lives. Whereas, you know, Mr. Conroy's family, I'm sure, are having a very different reaction. They're sad in a completely different way. And it made Shuri and Ramonda feel human, even though they're the royal family, and dare I say, superheroes. You know, yes, they're happy to have had their brother and their son in their life. They're happy to have known him. They've, they're they feel maybe blessed in a way to have been a part of his life and have them a part of theirs. But it's the funeral. We can't feel a thousand yards away like everybody else can disconnect. And it felt real and human. And that's part of the that was part of what got me into Letitia Wright's performance. The fact that you know it's sort of a celebration, and she's like the only one crying. It's like I'm the you know the saddest person in a in a party. You know what I mean? Which I'm not comparing a funeral to a party. Please, that's just that's like I instantly connected with what she was radiating. Uh, she played off everyone well. She played off Okoye well. She played very well off Namor. I believe that she's Angela Bassett's daughter. Um, she played great with Riri as sort of a mentor slash um, calming presence for Riri as well. You know, they're both geniuses. Um, they're both taken out of their element out into the field. You know, Shuri's more comfortable in the lab, but now she's in the field. And Riri's comfortable in her lab. Uh, building an Ironheart suit. Now she has to be the Ironheart, and maybe she's not quite ready. And, you know, I believe, and it's not just sadness as well. Uh, well, I guess we should probably talk about it now. Big shout, thank you, big thank you to Michael B. Jordan for finding the time to come back. And I don't say that facetiously. Like, I love that she went to the ancestral plane and saw Killmonger because that's 
the ancestor that she could relate to. Man, she was furious. She was rageful. She was angry. And that is Killmonger in a nutshell. He was angry at the entire fucking planet. Shuri's anger is a little more focused. But, but it, you know, and, 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 and I'm not saying that, like Michael B. Jordan like did the world a favor, you know, but I, but I do appreciate that, you know, he committed to, you know, getting back into that makeup, getting his hair, that like, you know, just going whatever he had to do to film that scene. I mean, the dude's super busy now. He's a big star. He's directing Creed 3. Trust all the trailer. Looks good. Jonathan Majors. Holy shit. Dude's fucking made out of a goddamn... They carved that man out of a mountain. He's playing Kang, too. But anywho, I just, you know, thanks for coming back, Mr. Michael B. Jordan. Uh, Now let's get you playing Black Superman, please. Uh, Please. Please, can you please play Superman, Michael B. Jordan? Please. Okay, I'm done. Um, but yeah, and I, and I love too that, you know, we all saw what the Black Panther looked like in the trailer. I love that she had the gold because, you know, Killmonger's the Golden Jaguar. I don't think they ever said Golden Jaguar in the first film, but that's his supervillain alias in the Marvel Universe proper. Now he's just Killmonger because everybody knows him as Killmonger, but he was the Golden Jaguar. Uh, that was his supervillain. And I love that, you know, because in the Black Panther 1, when he gets the suit, he it's basically the gold Jaguar suit, but they don't call him that. I love that Shuri has the gold because that's who she is inside the suit right now. She is Killmonger. She is the golden Jaguar. And, of course, she's the Black Panther. So she's T'Challa as the Black Panther. She's still herself because she has her Shuri white dot makeup on. And she is the golden Jaguar because she is the embody- She's the Black Panther of rage. Well done. Well done with the costume design. Well done to sync it all up into an actual part of the performance. Top marks from a Johnny C. Let's finish this thing off and talk about the few Marvel problems that I had, and then we'll get out of here. So, I had three. Uh, One was Ironheart getting shortchanged. We talked about it. No need to talk about it further. I hope I I made sense there. Uh, Val and... uh, What's his name? Uh... Martin, fucking uh, Bilbo Baggins. What is his character's name? Martin Freeman is his real name. It doesn't matter. Uh, Ross, I think. It doesn't matter. The point is, is this. I had no problem with either of these two people being in the movie, and they were fine in it, but their little side quest and subplot absolutely was just like, hey, guess what? Thunderbolts is going to come out in, in a little bit. Like, I, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, I'm glad she's in the Marvel Universe as sort of the evil Nick Fury type person who's, you know, in charge, basically. And I have to admit, I've always kind of thought Julia Louis-Dreyfus was kind of, you know, cute. But that purple fucking th- streak in her hair, I don't know if I can say what I want to say, but I think you know what I'm thinking. It was I was having myself a darn good time in Wakanda with a Ms. Louis Dreyfus. But it just did feel a little tacked in, and that's, it's fine. It kept the plot moving most of the time. Everett Ross, that's his name. Just came back to me. Um, so, you know, it's fine. I was surprised that they used to be married. I don't know if that's really necessary, but that's fine. Um, so, yeah, they just didn't really... It's like they were on a soundstage somewhere else, like, we're in the movie too. <laughs> it just felt a little tacked on is all. The only other mar- complaint that I have that, you know, is that's because this movie is a part of the greater Marvel Universe is what I'm just calling super technology. Now, it's a little earned at this point, so it might be okay. I just... I don't know. Like, 
I love Wakanda as like a technological paradise. It's just there's so much super technology in Marvel now. I feel like no one's ever at risk. And I feel like it's just so easy to be like, you know, we can synthesize the herb. Uh, you can make an iron heart suit in a day. Uh, here's the fucking DNA that I can play. I don't know. It's fine. Like, that's kind of Wakanda's thing. So it's kind of silly that I... I don't have a problem with it. It's just... Every once in a while when something dramatic happens, in the back of my head I'm thinking, it's Marvel, there's probably some super technology that can save them. That's it, I'm done, I've said my piece. It's fine. It's sort of a caveat we have to agree uh, to at this point because we're like 30 movies and TV shows deep into the MCU, so it is what it is. But, you know, like I said, 93% of this film is absolutely fantastic. The Marvel problems, eh, the 7% that are Marvel problems in finger quotes don't really affect me at all. I usually give these things a rating. I'm going to go 8.88 out of 10. Because I'm not ready to commit to 9 because I've only seen it once. But man, oh man, it has to be. You know, I've often said to people that ask me, what's your favorite Marvel movie? I'll be like, I don't know. It's probably Infinity War Endgame because after they go so big, what you know? How do you? what's the point in going backwards? You know, It's like uh, if someone hands me WrestleMania or Superstars to watch and I can only watch one of them for the rest of my life, well, I'm probably just going WrestleMania because it's the biggest one. Or I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like how do you just go back and watch Ant-Man when you could watch Endgame? You know what I mean? And you get this big, bombastic, crazy fucking spectacle so i don't know if this is you know and it's also a little more somber and not as upbeat which i kind of like but this has to be the best marvel film in my opinion it may not be the best marvel spectacle it may not be the best stunt show it may not have the best flippy flippy superhero action it might not be a five-star tokyo dome classic but it's absolutely off the top of my head the best constructed marvel piece of art as opposed to pop art that they've ever produced. And I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And so that's where I'm going to leave it and wrap a bow on this entire conversation. But folks, just because it's the end of this podcast doesn't mean that you have to leave the North-South Connection Podcast Network. Check out everything that's here on the network feed. Pop culture, professional wrestling, something is going to be up your alley, especially when it comes to wrestling. Old school wrestling, the ruthlessly aggressive era, the attitude era, Fridays alternating with AEW and clotheslines and headlines 2.0 to cover the modern era. It's all there for you. I promise there's going to be something on this feed that scratches the itch of your fandom. If you like Johnny C, I'm here once a month on Sundays doing the multiverse of fabulousness. Oh man, we did some. So we did a double feature on Halloween that was absolutely fucking crazy. You should check out. And just a cheap plug for myself, if you like Johnny C and the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, I have my own podcast feed, the new TNN, because, you know, we are pop. Uh, yeah, and nobody's using the new TNN trademark, so I just kind of fucking, you know, changed the name of my old podcast feed, which used to be the Aqua Cave. Now it's the new TNN It's available on all podcast-based applications. I talk about wrestling and movies quite a bit. There's lots of shit. We just released our 100th episode where we made fun of the 2002 movie Rollerball starring Chris Klein, Paul Heyman, and briefly, Shane McMahon. 
if I could lead you to that, it would be my pleasure. It was absolutely fucking bonkers. But subscribe to North South Connection Podcast Network. Leave a review. Subscribe to the new TNN. Leave a review, question mark. And make sure that you come back to us. I'm Johnny C. A winner is you. And we will see you the next time that a big-ass fucking movie comes to cinemas. So, uh, how many people out there were like, wait a minute, he didn't even talk about the post credit scene. Well, podcasts can have post credit scenes too, can't they? But, in all actuality, there's a reason I'm doing this, folks. Uh, if you have something important to say, I mean really important to say, I guess I'm of two minds about this. Number one, I'm really the post credit scene is mandatory in a Marvel film, and I guess I understand that. And I appreciate the fact that they used the bait, if you will, of a post credit scene to lure people into a feeling that uh, I, the big rumor I heard was Doctor Doom Okay, was going to be the post credit scene. I don't know where it came from. I don't even know where I heard it, but I heard it. And I love that they used the post credit scene as a method to close the story to give us the son of Nakia and T'Challa and to give Shuri a final piece of closure and I love the credit sequence of her burning her funeral garb it was beautiful and it was a tremendous ending and great follow-through on the setup that they had from earlier I absolutely believe that and that would have been enough but this is important information for Shuri to have that her family is not gone that she is not the last of the line that she has someone that she can give her energy to. Maybe she wouldn't have given up on being queen if she knew that there was an heir. Anywho, but I do think it's uh, it's nice that they use this to, to say something important about the story that they're telling, but flip side of the coin, I think you should probably include it in your movie before the credits. It lends, dare I say, and I'm not trying to sound snobbish, it adds a bit of credibility to not use the Marvel gimmick as a way to finish your very adult narrative. And that's sort of where I, I, I feel on that one. I'm totally okay with it. I hope Lupita Nyong'o comes back. Uh, she's fantastic. And this kid was all energy. And, I, you know, he's one of those kids that you know, you're sure was a blast on set and you're just hoping that he remembers his lines. Not because he's, you know, not... It's just because he's a ball of energy. Like, he just seemed... Uh, he was great. And it, it it's great to leave with a smile on your face as well because uh, this kid's got charisma. Charisma, as Polly Shore would say. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that he's here. But, uh, you know, all I'm saying is if you got something important to say... Say it before the credits roll. That's kind of the way I feel about things. Also, the fucking score of this movie was awesome, and I love how the uh, folks from Talakan rode animals like orcas and fucking whales and shit into battle. It was badass. All right, that's it. We're really done now. Thanks for sticking around and wondering if there was a post credit scene. And uh, like I said, I did it to make a point. If you didn't end up hearing it, ah, sorry. Maybe I'll hit you up next time.